Hey folks, this is Boris Jabez, and you're listening to The Sequel Show. If you're new to the show, this is a space I use to talk about all things data and data-driven operations with some of my favorite people from across the industry. Some of these conversations are one-on-one, sometimes we do group conversations, and even sometimes we get into hearty debate about the role of data teams and data technology and all the changes going on in our industry. I was joined in this episode by Eric Bernhardson, who built teams at Spotify uh, and ran engineering at a company called better.com. He's had an amazing career in data and he's exploring new ideas these days. We talked about all sorts of things from how to build recommendation systems and whether you should build recommendation systems, uh, how, whether data teams should be thought of as an engineering discipline, how to manage and govern the data team, how to measure the impact, what programming languages we should embrace in the world of data, how to handle the abundance of data in companies. It's really just a far-reaching conversation, super interesting. We even talked about what the essence of music is and to what degree nature versus nurture influences our musical taste. So without further ado, I give you Eric Bernhardson. Eric, nice to nice Hi. to meet you. I feel like you're in my list of people, you know, that I have, I feel like I know in a way because a good chunk of your persona is on the internet and I've interacted with you on, on Twitter, which I guess is par for the course in, in data these days. But uh, why don't you tell people, you know, who you are, <laughs> a bit of your backstory? Yeah, I'm a bot. I just exist on Twitter. Yeah, I, I have a long sort of weird path and, and, and sort of background. I... I've been coding for almost 30 years, starting in Sweden when I was born. I didn't start coding, but, but, but I was born over there and, and, you know, started coding quite early on a Mac Plus. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was doing some HyperCard, if you remember. Me that. too. In- Dude, that's my first programming language. Really? Oh, this is so rare to meet someone. It's on my, I think it's on my like Twitter bio. It's like I, my, my dream is to recreate the magic of HyperCard someday. Like the it feeling I good. had I mean, I, using HyperCard. It was nice. I mean, I feel like it was like the visual basic of Mac for, for people who maybe don't, you know, yeah. maybe that reference yeah. does make me sense. But it was a very nice way to get started. I, I think that, you know, then I switched to like JavaScript in like, I don't know, 96, 97, I guess. I, I don't know if it existed in 96. Uh, did a little bit of Perl and then started doing C and stuff like that. I, I did a lot of competitive programming in high school oh. at university. And through a bunch of people I met at my university, uh, I ended up at Spotify, which at that time, when I graduated school back in Sweden, it was this like obscure music streaming company that had a bunch of smart people. And so I was like, I just want to go work with them and see what's up. And, and like, maybe they'll have some interesting problems. For, and, and so I kind of persuaded Spotify to hire me to build a music recommendation system, despite not really having any background in machine learning or, or really not having, you know, any sort of experience doing it. And so, you know, joined in mid-2008, started hacking on that relatively quickly realized like Spotify had like so many more like urgent problems around data, like the Hadoop cluster being on fire and a bunch of other stuff, but also just like making sense out of like the business and understanding Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of just like core metrics. So I I spent about two, three years in Sweden focusing on that, like setting up a small BI team and doing a lot of reporting and that kind of stuff. Kind of at the same time, hacking on the music recommendation system in my spare time, because I always like figured like it would be useful at Spotify at some point. 
moved to the US about 10 years ago to work at Spotify. Actually, kind of long story, I worked at someone else first and then I came back to Spotify. And at that time, I ended up moving back to the music recommendation system. So, so, so did a lot of large scale machine learning stuff, spent another three, four years at Spotify New York, open source a thing called Luigi, which is sort of before Airflow was big, was, was yep. probably the biggest workflow scheduler. I saw some other stuff. There's like a thing called Annoy, which is like high dimensional nearest neighbors. It has it, the brand name on that one's not as strong as Luigi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so, and then I left Spotify and I ended up joining a very early stage uh, mortgage startup. And, and I was a CTO for six years there. Built up a team of eventually three, 400 people. So did a lot of like CTO stuff, occasionally coding, but not so much. A lot of recruiting, a lot of kind of, I decided at some point I wanted to start my own company. I always wanted to do that. And, and so, and then, you know, thinking about all the different opportunities in the world, I've decided data probably makes sense. Like I have a lot of experience with that and there's a lot of stuff to do. So, so for the past year or so, at least the last six months, I've been focusing on exploring some ideas and, and building mm-hmm. a small team and hacking up some prototypes in the data space. Nice. This yes. Is, you have, uh, uh, I guess what people would call founder market fit in the realm of data. Yeah, or, or, or just like, you know, delusion that I, I think, you know, there, there's better ways to do things. But we'll sort of see how it works out. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, I think in tech or otherwise, right, whether it's a restaurant or a tech company, I think a little bit of that delusion is important. You, yeah. You, you know, otherwise no one would start anything. <laughs> Why? Yeah, like it's the, funny because you kind of have to be a little like megalomaniac optimists on one side, but you also need to be this like paranoid, neurotic person on the other side. And, and it's like, at the same time, I, I sort of, you know, noticed that about founders. And, 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 and I think it's something I think a lot about, like, you know, you, you need to like be both at the same time in a way. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I think the first feeling I had that when I started my first company, it was, I just felt this strong sensation that the thing that we wanted to build, like just had to exist. Like it just had to independent yeah. of, of like our, us doing it. And it was almost like, Oh, this is inevitable. Like, and the arrogance of that, when you think about it, is, is pretty significant. Cause I was like, it's not about we, us building. It's like, it just has to exist. I, 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 this feels like a physical inevitability. And it's like the, yeah. the, the supreme arrogance of like my idea just is so good, so important, so essential that it just has to exist in the universe. So, so yeah, it's good. I hear you. yeah, and, and I mean, listen, it's it makes the world a little more exciting uh, when people actually try these things, and then we end up with, and then, then there's something called the market that resolves the kind of the delta between you, your delusions, and and everyone else. Yeah, I've heard about that market. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. Okay, well, you already brought up a bunch of things I want to ask about, so I'm gonna rewind because. Even just how you got into Spotify sounds interesting to me. So you had met them through university or like you had friends that worked there when it was like how small? I think 30, 40 employees. Okay. So it was was tiny. And you pitched them when you joined on Let Me Build You Machine Learning Systems in 2008? It was a little bit like more complicated. Like I had written, I, I like convinced my university to like get like, course credits for just like building a recommendation system on my own and just like building a website around it. It's like sort of a weird sort of just, you know, project. And I got introduced to the CTO of Spotify at that time. And he was like, this could be interesting in Spotify. Let's eat lunch. And I was like, what if I come and just rebuild this whole thing at Spotify? And, you know, and then I'll, and, and then I ended up actually doing my master's thesis doing that. Right. And then I ended up joining full time right after that. Okay. 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 But you're saying, I think this would be a surprise to most people after all these years, that 
when you got there, before you even started that master's project, like recommendations were n not a feature of the product. No, there was like nothing. I mean, like, you know, there was the core, you know, music playback experience. Like you would double click on a track and it would play. Yeah. And like you could search for tracks and put them in playlists and, you know, but that was pretty much it. And that's what I think Spotify set up, you know, set Spotify apart for, for the first few years. It was just like that magic ability, like, you know, you know, iTunes had showed that like, okay, you can like, you know, sell music online. But I think Spotify was the first player, you know, the first company that really thought through the implications of the cloud and like ownership and how that should be different. Mm -hmm. And like mm -hmm. the fact that like you can actually have music in the cloud, you know, with as good of an experience as it would be if you had it locally. And, and so I think, you know, building that was a very hard feature, you know, very hard engineering problem that Spotify figured out back in 2008. Today, it's very simple. You just put it on a CDN. But back then, the results like yep. P2P and like all those other, yep. you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, yep. like it's, it's pretty complex. I am old enough to remember the those early years of various players. But what's interesting to me is that today, I think we associate these products as like recommendations are at their core, right? At least I think that's how most people would think of most cloud-based products like that are massively consumer-oriented like Spotify or you know TikTok is like the recommendation system is the magic sauce. And what you're saying is at the time, like that was, you had to crawl before you could walk or run and recommendations was like in a maybe potential future when you joined. It was like, it was an experiment they're willing to have you try, but it wasn't the core thrust of the company. No, it wasn't the core. I, I, I like rarely feel like recommendations or any sort of machine learning is Right. Like, you know, in most cases, in almost every company, like machine learning is like the sprinkles on the top. Like you can like take whatever you have and make a little bit more, you know, a little bit better. Like, let's say you're an e-commerce you know, company, like, you know, the core of the company is like selling stuff online. Right. Like, you know, adding recommendations, it might improve your revenue by 10 percent. And that's great. But it's like really not it's not like the core of the company in a way. Like, you know, the company would exist, you know, with or without recommendations. Now, of course, I, I think, you know, in Spotify's example, I think part of it is like, you know, over time, the sort of core problem of like streaming music became commodity. Like everyone can do that. And how do you differentiate? And I think that's where like, you know, music recommendation become very important. I think for maybe other reasons too, like Spotify, you know, in a way like ends up being almost a way to exert power of the labels. Cause like you take control over like how people pick music, you sort of, you know, so, so sure. there's many other reasons, but I think, you know, I, I think it's worth reminding, like remembering that like, you know, machine learning is very rarely something that like fundamentally enables a new business model. It's, it's often something that takes an existing business model and makes it like 5% better, 10%, whatever. Like, and that's it. But yeah. that can be very good. I, I, I mean, of course, like in, in an established business, 5% increases with pure software is excellent, right? With no human extra input after time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's, as someone who spent so many years working on systems like that, I think it's an it's a important thing to, to note. I've been kind of joking about it a lot, but like, you know, the fact that I spent so many years doing machine learning in a way, like the benefit of that is like, I know all the stuff machine learning is not good for. Like, I, I, you know, there's many like things that I'm excited to use machine learning for, but I'm also like somewhat, you know, skeptical of like, you know, people like think you can just sprinkle AI and everything and make it better. Like, that's just not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think something you said struck me there, which is, I think at a certain, even if you leave aside the, it only adds five or 10%, it's an interesting question of, you know, what do you have to do differently from a software perspective or user experience perspective when you reach a kind of abundance, right? And I think there was always too much music for any single human to listen to long before the internet. Yeah. But 
you were constrained by, you know, kind of your supply, the dollars you had to go purchase CDs, all, all the, you know, and your time to even try them out. And so I could see a certain kind of mental model you could run, right? That says, if the supply is infinite, then I need some form, some way to get you, you know, what might be most valuable to you in there. And earlier as a Spotify, my my recollection is it was just like, just go find the things you already know you like, right? It was, it left the discovery problem to the outside world. Yeah. Uh, And and like most people come to Spotify with an idea of some music they want to listen to. So that's like, man, it's just fine. You know, just like Amazon, I don't know if they need recommendations. Like, they need search relevance and stuff like that. But recommendations, like, they would survive without it. Like, it, you know, it just adds up being, like, you know, better. And so I think, I think, you know, it, it's sort of interesting that, like, you know, a lot for, there's very few companies where I think recommendations is core. I feel like TikTok maybe is, like, one of those examples where, like, I feel like without, like, an algorithmic feed, like, it kind of would be kind of useless, honestly. Yes. Yeah. But, but even, you know, so, so, but so I think there are those, like, rare examples, do you mind if I ask when you were designing it for the people who kind of, because in the same way that you're like ML, you know, shouldn't necessarily be the core thing in a product or a company. I'm curious, like what was the fundamental design of the recommendation system you built? So I'm familiar with kind of collaborative filtering models from when I was in university and like early Amazon days were kind of built that way. But I'm curious, like what is a good recommendation system? Yeah, I, I think so, so we looked at, like, when I started working on it, like, there really was just the Netflix price. And, and, and I felt like machine learning was, like, nowhere near where it is now. Like, no one's doing deep learning. Like, deep learning didn't exist, you know, until, like, a couple of years later, like, 2012, whatever. Alex Krzyzewski's paper or whatever. Maybe a little bit earlier. Like, some people were doing it. But anyway, so, so, you know, I looked a lot at, like, the Netflix price. And, and I think, you know, the, the sort of, after, like, sort of stumbling around for about six months, like, what, what I sort of realized was, like, there's this, like, class of models called, you know, the latent features or latent vector models. And, and they all sort of, you know, have the same idea that, you know, it sort of resembles like factorization, sort of SVD mm-hmm. or PCA from sort of earlier like math, that, you know, you're going to learn some sort of vector representation of every item. And the powerful thing is like, once you have that, like you can do, you know, you have this like very compact representation of what is music, like what is this track? It's just a vector of numbers. And in that space, you know, you end up with like a, you know, 40 dimensional space or whatever. It turns out like similar music will have similar vectors. So that's why I ended up building this tool to do approximate nearest neighbors. Now, the question is like, how do you get to those vectors? Like that's quite hard. And, you know, especially when you have a lot of data, it was all collaborative filtering. So, so we would look at like, you know, basically like music streaming patterns and trying to find, you know, the sort of. Intuitively, like it sort of makes sense that if like two users are listening to the same set of tracks, you know, those two users are probably pretty similar. Intuitively, it also makes sense to converse. Like, you know, like you have, you know, two tracks that are streamed by the same set of users, you know, if the set of users overlap to a large extent, like those tracks are probably pretty similar. And so the, the, the sort of, you know, that's a sort of intuitive idea. That, that how do you make that work in, in a vector space at large scale? Like that that's a lot more messy math, but but you know, for people, you know, done a little bit like matrix factorization, maybe something like that. Like, that's basically how it works. Like, the sort of idea is like, you, you learn these vectors using various, like, numerical optimization. And, you know, and you can phrase that as like an objective in machine learning, you want to minimize or maximize or whatever, using something like log likelihood or something like that, if mm-hmm. you have a generative model or something like that. But the same idea is, you know, the same idea as like, PCA or SVD, like you're trying to learn some vector representation of every item. And once you have that, like, you can do recommendations really well. Like, you know, once you build this approximate near neighbor search, which is also quite hard, but it turns out it's actually very convenient once you get to that space. Gotcha. 
is for my own edification, does it generally find similar songs or would it find complementary, like unrelated songs that two, two people would, you know, it, it, when I think of collaborative filtering, I think of it as users who like this also like this, right? Like that's the yeah. colloquial way of describing exactly. it. Exactly. That's a sort of intuitive way to think about it. Exactly. And it's a, it's one of those rare cases where it's like, you know, the algorithm and the intuition of a regular person are basically more or less yeah. one-to-one. And, yeah. but one of the things that can provide is things that have nothing to do with each other, right? It's like people who like th this stuff can also like this compliment. Like an Amazon product, you might find that, you know, this cleaning thing is related to people who like, you know, knitting for all you know, right? Like it, it, those things can be, yeah. can, can, can be matched. Is, was it the same with music or did you find that it really mostly found music that was in the same genre slash exact style? Yeah. I mean, like we didn't know anything about the music, right? Like the models didn't know anything about the artist or the genre or anything. Like we didn't teach it that. So, right. you know, to the extent it found similarity. Yeah. Like those tended to be, you know, most tracks by the same artist would be similar. Most, you know, tracks in the same genre would be similar and dissimilar to other genres, et cetera. So, 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 so certainly I, I think that that is, you know, what we ended up finding. I, I think, you know, later that wasn't until like, you know, 2014 or whatever, we mm -hmm. started doing deep learning actually on the audio content. And, and then I think it's like a little bit interesting because like now you have like sort of a very different model and like you can sort of look at like, okay, you know, maybe sometimes two tracks that are like, you know, very similar judging by collaborative filtering or not similar at all. Like, like, I don't know, like maybe, you know, uh, two Christmas tracks, like, you know, come up like, you know, as very similar if you look sure, at collaborative sure. filtering. Sure, like sure, right, but they're in together. totally different musical genres, yeah, yeah. Could be completely different genres, right? Conversely, like it, an artist who's released an album and like two of the tracks are like very like, diff they sound very different, but they're on the same album, you know, they would, you know, be very similar according to collaborative filtering, but not if you actually look at the audio. Collaborative filtering tends to be better in almost every case, though. So to the extent you look at audio or any other sort of metadata, it's more a way to, like, refine things Got it. that come out of the collaborative filtering stuff. But so, so, collaborative so what you're saying, let me see if I can paraphrase, right? What you're saying is the whatever AI we have reached so far cannot uncover in the essence of the song what makes it appealing to me. And it, I mean, it can to some degree, but not as well as... Boris, you are like all these other people and they like this song. And that is a much easier slash more correct, like higher probability uh, kind of solution. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what's the essence of music. Like, does anyone know? Like there's some shit that happens. I mean, you have more insight like, than I would, right? I'm just saying, like, I'm asking you because you've at least spent yeah. more time in the, <laughs> you've broken well, I, down yeah. songs into a like series of numbers, you know, like I, I mean, haven't. I, I know there's this like research field of like psychoacoustics, right? Like, you know, yeah. like, how does the brain perceive sound? And, like, I don't know anything about it, frankly. Like, you know, to, to me, that's like a mystery. Like I, I, I like listening to music a lot. Like I grew up always listening to music and, you know, a lot, you know, all the time. But like, I don't know, why do you like music? Like, I don't know. Like, what is it about the human brain? We're like, I have no idea. I, I don't think right. we're going to get closer to that through any sort of, you know, collaborative filtering. Certainly. <laughs> you know, maybe, I feel like the right approach is like, we just got to open the brain and like, see what the fuck's right. happening. Like inside the brain, like, I don't know, MRI. I don't know. That's a very different. No, question. I mean, I think that gets into also like questions of to what degree is musical taste nature versus nurture, right? Like, are we genetically predisposed to like certain kinds of music <laughs> independent of how we're brought up? I think there's something that's like innate, like the rhythms and stuff and like certain like, you know, I, I think like certain, you know, frequencies at certain, you know, 
offsets or, or sort of proportions. Of course, like you enjoy it more because you get like yeah. resonant frequencies. But, but uh, you know, so there's certain things that I think are innate. But then I think a lot of it is just like, you know, culture and like, you know, whatever. I mean, is. one would assume that, right? Because music developed differently all over the place. But it'd exactly. be very interesting to know that if, you know, I'd love to know if someone t- did a test of like take two twins, you know, raise them in different set like environments and see if they converge on the same musical taste because it's, you know, there's an innate, you know, predisposition towards certain rhythms. Yeah, uh, I mean, you could do a twin study, right? Like you could look at fraternal twins versus identical twins and say, you know, how much sure. higher is the correlation in music taste for identical twins versus fraternal right. twins? Right, right, right. That should give you some idea. I don't know. Anyway, what? what well, when you're on the data team, actually, okay, well, that, that brings me to a related question, right? When you're on the data team or when you were building out the because da- you started as the only person doing these kinds of problems at Spotify, and then you ended up having a whole team of people doing what we now call data, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I ended up managing quite early at Spotify. You know, I, I managed a small BI team or whatever you want to call it, analytics. And then at Spotify, right. you know, in New York, I ended up building a, a music recommendation team. I think right. I grew that to and so, 25 people. Two questions that are unrelated here, but related to that. So one, to what degree were you budgeting both time and, and people towards that kind of open-ended experimentation, not necessarily a fraternal twin study, but you know these kinds of, hey, I don't know, what if, like, should we go explore something uh, a little more researchy versus, hey, let's just tackle the most immediate problem right now and solve it, you know, using yeah. the tools we have. I, I think that's very hard to know. Like, and it's like talking more like direct terms. Let me get back to how like how I do it. But but I thought a lot about this thing, and and I think, you know. There's different set of tasks, you know, in software engineering. Like some are like have like very low uncertainty. Like you yep. know it's gonna take roughly, you know, three hours to do this or whatever. Some of them have like extremely high uncertainty. Like how do you build a music recommendation system? Like how, how much time is it gonna take? Like no one knows. You kind of just have to start building it with the conviction that it might work. And then if it like, you know, six months in, it's still not working. You're like, okay, this is probably harder. Like let's like, you know, pause it or whatever. So I, I, to me, like a lot of it like can be sort of conceptually like thought of as like okay what is the uncertainty like especially if you think about like software engineering planning as like you know the outcome is like on some sort of log normal scale like you know sure. you can have a blow up of like 100x if you're like not careful right yep you know uh, you know so, so, so there's a lot more like sort of upside you know in a negative way than downside and, and i think that you know makes it very hard and, and so you know and, and when you think about it that i think to a large extent also dictates like how you should think about resource allocation and planning when you're in a low uncertainty environment I think it makes sense to have like quite detailed specs, you know, like let's say you're like, whatever, let's say you're an engineer building a bridge, like all the things are kind of known, all the steps are known, you got to put the pylons in, you got to whatever, I don't even know, I never did that, but but like, you know, I'd imagine like they're fairly well known, but but like when you're doing research, like I did at Spotify, like most of what we're doing was research, like you don't know. So I, I would just let people do whatever they wanted. Like I would just say, you know what, like do you have a high conviction in this? Let's do it. But at the end of the day, you know, we got to run a test. We got to get it out to people. We need to see that it works. Like, as long as you're sort of clear about, like, the objective, I think, you know, I gave it, you know, I, my management style is pretty much like, do whatever you want, as long as you have some sort of conviction that it's the right thing to do. Would you put those on a high-level, like, calendar timeline of, like, you have this much no. time to try out your idea? No. No. Okay. And then how, this is actually, for most early managers, I, this is going to be a good question for them. It's like, how did you manage those expectations up? Like, how did you explain that to your your management? I am terrible at managing up <laughs> for, for some of these reasons. <laughs> I, I think, you know, 
Because I, I feel like the natural tendency is like, you know, people don't really like this. You know, people. No, it's uncomfortable. What you're describing is an uncomfortable you know, state. And it's a good it's one, but it's an uncomfortable. Right? But, yeah. but, 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 but like also like what I think you have to do is to earn the trust by showing that like every few weeks we ship like, you know, recommendations that give, you know, X percent improvement to like, you know, retention of Spotify or, or premium conversion. Like right. if you can establish those like business metrics and show that like, you know, we're actually delivering a lot of value here. Like to me, that is the key to like earn that trust to say, okay, let us run this like the way we want it. Like I'm going to have this like research thing going on, but like, you know, look at the outcomes. Like they're pretty yeah. good. Yeah. By the way, I think that's actually the way I would answer the question too, which is the way I think about it is you get to run an increasingly, uh, more opaque box, right? Like you get to have more and more control over how you run things, the better your, the more, the longer your track run of, of good outcomes, right? And totally. I think it's the goal of an engineer, individual or team or any, I think this actually applies to non-engineers too. I think this is no different in sports, right? Where, you know, Lionel Messi can kind of do whatever. He doesn't have to follow the coach's plan, right? Like, cause he has demonstrated that his approach has worked really well over a long period of time. And so I think it's, that sounds about right for engineers too. And so what you need, you know, the corollary then is that you need really good KPIs to show your worth, right? That you're delivering those outcomes. And, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, you know, you go to Kanye West and you're like, oh, I want you to write like one hit every month. And, you know, this is how we're going to track it. Like, I don't know. Like, maybe you can, like, tell Kanye you have to make one beat every day. Like, you know. Right. And that's, like, probably a little bit more, you know, manageable. But, you know, to me, that's, like, kind of a useless. Because, you know, Kanye probably makes, like, 100 beats for every hit song. Like, you know. Sure. He throws away I don't even know. Of them. And so, like, how do you know if something's going to be a hit or not? Like, Kanye knows. Like, let him do what he's good at. I mean, I don't know. Now it's crazy. But, like, maybe that's a bad example. But, but so... My point is, like, it, it's so hard to know with these, like, extremely uncertain things, you know, how much work is it going to be till you produce the next hit? You know, yep. maybe you're lucky and it's tomorrow. Maybe, you know, you're unlucky and it takes, like, a year or two years or whatever. Like, you don't know. And, you know, so, but, but you know, but Kanye has a track record, so. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the art of it, if you will, because I actually strongly agree with you on this is how you should manage creatives and engineers are a kind of creative, right? And... The key is you have to build up the reservoir, right, of, of, of credibility so that you can do that. For sure. I think that, and the art is like, how do I do that? How do I, okay, maybe I do really basic things for a while. And you said it, actually, this is a perfect segue into my other question, right, which is, you said you got there fairly young with this idea of like, I'm going to go do these cool recommendation machine learning things. And then you realized, you said, right, that really there was all these like basic problems that needed to be tackled right now. And some of those were bi right yeah so for sure is that so do people how do people how would you tell people to to identify you know you got to work on these things that are not necessarily the kind of the dream that you want to work on but these are the things that are actually the highest value that would be good for the business, even though they're not, yeah. you know, cool ML. No, absolutely. I think, you know, a little bit reductive maybe, but I think, you know, putting people on a spectrum, you know, I, th I think there's one side of it, which is like, what I think was like tool oriented people, like they're very excited about certain pieces of technology. They're like, yeah, like I love functional programming, like whatever, you know, deep learning, sure. like, you know, I love type checking. 
whatever it is. Like, and, and then there's like people on the other side of the spectrum who are like, I don't care. I just want to like build a company, you know, and like, right. I just want to like make things successful. Like I want to be a part of something and I want to like look at something and tell my friends I built this. Right. And I think, I feel like a lot of people, you know, grow up on, you know, I, I did like, you know, thinking I was like a very tools oriented people. Part of it's mm-hmm. like, I, you know, I did a lot of math, you know, programming competitions and I loved algorithms. I was like, I just right. want to work on algorithms. What I, I think I'm so happy I ended up at Spotify and, and you know, and instead of, you know, I had a successful startup because like what I realized, like at the end of the day, it was like, I don't really care. Like, I just want to like, you know, make sure that like, you know, I, I'm part of, you know, building something, you know, that's my sort of you know, legacy when I die is like, I, I built something that's like, you know, people used and people liked and, and, and you know, whatever it takes. And, and so what I, I realized is actually at a startup, it's actually really quite dangerous to hire people who are like tool oriented because they're always going to be like biased towards using that tool. You know, maybe today, you know, you need to build something and this person's like, yeah, I'm going to like use my functional programming language because like, that's like, you know, and like, maybe that's like a terrible tool for that task. And, and so... You know, if your whole career pursuit is to like deepen your own knowledge about functional programming, you know, maybe there's like a fundamental misalignment with what I need from you, which is to like produce business value. And so I think, you know, you need to look for that in people. You need to look for people who are like very, very commercial, you know, and what what I mean with that is like my sort of aspirational, somewhat naive goal for like what people, you know, how people should think about like priorities is like people should just come in every morning and just ask themselves, what can I do today that adds the most value to the business? Which is obviously like, you know, very like, you know, theoretical and maybe not, you know, so practical, but like, how do you get to that as, as, as close as possible? And I think that especially happens for data teams where I think that there's a huge gap, you know, some people are like very interested in tools and I think that's very dangerous because if there's anything I've seen to be, you know, make data people successful, it's not that they care about tools. It's that they like have like a very deep sort of curiosity about the business. Like they want to understand you know, what's going on. Like they're talking to a project product manager and they're like, you know, about some like problem with user conversion and they get all these like ideas in their head. They're like, oh my God, like maybe this is like, could explain it. I'm going to go look at the data. Like, and you know, you know, and, and maybe, you know, and like, you know, whether that like requires a SQL query or whether that requires some like very complicated machine learning model, that's just a means to an end, mm-hmm. you know, but everything is driven by this like deep curiosity for like, you know, how do we make the business better? And so I, that's one thing I've realized about myself that, that like I care a lot more about that. And also something I've realized about like, you know, how to build successful startups and, and teams is like, you need to make sure people are in it for, you know, for, 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 for in a commercial way. Like they care about like what the business is trying to do. Yeah, I, I do, one could argue that if anything, the, the first in the Maslow's hierarchy of a data team, maybe the first thing that you should do is ensure that there is a commercial North Star for the company, that there is something we're trying to improve that is somewhat numerical, right? Because I imagine one of the hard parts must be for a lot of people is, and this is mostly true probably at a younger company than at a later stage company where there's all sorts of metrics and numbers and you know things, yeah. but is even if you feel this, I want to help the company this morning, you know, how do I make the company get better today, right? Every day that I walk in, they don't know how to define that. And so they define it in terms of their job and in terms of their tools and in terms of like 
intermediate outcomes rather than the, the ultimate outcome, which is you know, grow number of listeners or, or something like that, right? Yeah. Shareholder uh, value, whatever. Well, yeah. And then listen, uh, yeah, shareholder value is, there you go. That's probably a metric that's too far afield for the average employee to go like, you know, that's what I wake up in the morning is increase shareholder value. Although that is that is probably the ultimate answer. But um, I mean, it's you sort know, of this, right? Like that's for sure. fiduciary duty. To yourself, but, but, right? As a shareholder, that's to yourself, yeah, that's if anything. Uh, but when you joined Spotify, it was already obvious, I assume, right? It was like, just grow the number of listeners. Were there, when you said you took on these BI tasks, like how much of it was like figuring out new KPIs, new metrics versus just improving and measuring the ones that we had already, that you had already identified? Yeah, I think a lot of companies don't think enough about like designing good metrics because it can be quite hard because you're right. Like, you know, and, and I said, mentioned too, like, I think, you know, eventually like what you care about is like long-term shareholder value or like something like that. But like, you know, in practice, like that's impossible to like, yeah. for. you can't A-B <laughs> test it. Like you can't like see any ups and that. Like you can't measure it even. Like, you know, like what do you do? So you have to like, you know, pick some metrics that are like, you ha- you think are like good proxies for this. Like, you know, something that ideally you can, you know, A-B test, like something you can like see go up and down, like something sometimes that's hard to game, you know, that, that doesn't have like short-term fluctuations that's right. outside of your control. So, so I, I think, you know, that is very hard. I mean, Spotify, I think we, we, maybe we were lucky. Like we basically said, we don't really care about like, you know, revenue or anything. We just care about you know, daily active users. Like we basically like made a bet at Spotify that, you know, if we just like grow the number of people using Spotify every day, like everything else will follow us. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that actually made it quite simple. At better, it was much more complicated because like, what is it? Like, is it the number of loans? Is it like the revenue in each loan? Is it like, right. you know, do we care about like long-term revenue, like short-term revenue? Like I, that was a lot harder. I, I, think, I think in a lot of cases, like, you know, it's a kind of being, it should be the responsibility of the data team to actually think very deeply about those questions. Sadly, that never happens. <laughs> so I think often it's like the business, you know, business, you know, units tend to be more, you know, active in like driving, you know, setting those metrics. But it probably should be the data team, like really thinking through the pros and cons of different metrics. Because I think there's like, you know, you know like there's a lot of bad ways to pick metrics. You yeah. Know, the sort of metrics is like someone picks a metrics and then like, you know, three weeks later it like tanks and everyone's like, ah, uh, it's because like this other thing happened. You know, like, and, and then it's like kind of a useless metric because, like, how do you know? Like, wh- what's the point then? Right. How, aside from getting lucky on your first metric at your first company, like, how does one get good at figuring this out? How, how did you help better do this? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I helped them. I, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what, I also think, you know, to some extent, like, you know, the problem goes away if you look at like more like other parts of the business. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at user acquisition and like, you know, user acquisition, you can sort of argue about like, what should you measure? Should it be, you know, cost per lead or, or cost per, you know, transaction, whatever, like, you know, and, yeah. and then, but like, you know, it sort of goes away once you like sit down and you actually model everything out. And then like, you look at it, like all of it, like, I, I feel like a lot of those things like then become quite clear, like what you actually need to optimize for. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering the question correctly, but or, or right. But I think, you know, in the day to day, I don't know, like, I feel like there's this, like, I almost, like, wonder if, like, you know, maybe business shouldn't pick metrics and, like, care, like, 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 I think, you know, maybe the top level metrics are less important than the, like, day-to-day things that product managers care about. And, you know, and that actually are, like, actionable insights, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I, I don't know, like, because that's actually what ends up like, you know, driving business decisions and resource allocations and all kinds of, kinds of stuff. I, I don't know. Sure. It's like, I mean, the way that's almost like a top down versus a bottom up way of thinking about metrics, right? What there's the top down, which is what you're just talking about first, which is, you know, customer acquisition costs and, and kind of thinking about what would lead to long term shareholder value, right? And bottom up is what you're saying is like, well, what metric would move a decision from the inside the business that would allocate the most resources to whatever, yeah. which is, yeah, like you said, product managers may have the highest leverage there for at least at a technology company in terms of where the resources get allocated. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe the so top down is more around like, you know, ranking the metrics, but the bottoms up is like, you know, like, or like, or like rank, you know, giving some sort of, you know, idea of like, okay, this matters more than this, you know, because this is what our investors tell us, right? They care more about like, you know, NPS and they care about, you know, let's say, sure. you know, investors tell you that like, oh, we care a lot more about like users like your product and then they care right. about revenue. Then that becomes like, you know, then like an exercise for like product managers to think or like whoever, like engineering managers to think about, okay, like what do we, what do we, what do we prioritize? I don't know. Yeah. Well, in, in, you've been in two high functioning teams, so you haven't had probably enough experience with the low functioning teams, but what's, well, what's too many metrics? Like what's, you know, how many dashboards like at a high level should a startup, I'm not talking about a large public company, let's stick to the two experiences that you had, you know, kind of in the eras that they were in. Like, how many yeah. should people be looking at? Because you can't be an of, average employee and wake up in the morning and look at 25 metrics, right? That's probably I kinda, not the right number. I've sort of like increasingly become skeptical about dashboards, you know, and like metrics kind of used in that way. Because mm -hmm. like, you know, what is a dashboard? I mean, it comes from like a car or like whatever, you know, like, like let, let's say you're like, whatever it is, I don't know. But, you know, Probably, that actually. analogy, sure. you have like a driver looking at the dashboard and then like driving the car. And, and, and it just feels like, you know, in that loop, you know, you have the engine like, you know, telling things to the dashboard and the dashboard yeah. then telling things to the driver and then the driver yeah. like controlling the engine. And it just feels like, is that the right loop? You know, and I look at a company like, when I feel like the decision making is like decoupled from the people who actually look at the data, like, I don't know if that's like, you know, a good model for how to iterate. Like, you know, if the data team's job and product, you know, and engineering, if their job is just to compile metrics that they show to someone else and that someone else then has to make a decision that goes back to the data and product team, I feel like something is like broken with the iteration cycle that I don't like. And, and so I feel like, you know, why does like someone has to look at like 20 different dashboards every day like you know like i i think i don't i don't think an iteration loop where like someone's just looking at dashboards and making decisions is good I, i'd rather like you know smash that loop and just like you know give all the decision making ability to the people like deeper in the data who like sure. you know look at all the data and you know and that way you don't have to waste time you know building dashboard but all, more importantly you know you actually have you know decisions made at a local level Right. Like, and, mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, incorporating a lot more information. And I think that would be a good thing. Yeah. I think you and I are very aligned on that point of view. I think the point stands, right, that it was clean and probably very useful at Spotify that every employee probably was thinking about how do I grow daily active users? Right. And, and it was probably useful that you were measuring it correctly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then even better, to your point, that you and your team and other teams probably could directly run an experiment to test whether it changed that metric. And I agree with yeah. you, that should not go to a loop through the top or whatever. So so I agree with you on all that. The, 
but there's probably a bunch of startups out there just like your last one at Better, right? Which were like, what should be our metric? Like, even if it was just one, you know, that an like the line level decision makers or employees can use to to say we are making this company more like more valuable. We're, we're improving yeah. it. Yeah. Is it yeah. one? Should it be one for the whole company? Like one one a year, one a quarter, <laughs> and then we move on to a new one when we find a better one. Like it. Yeah, I don't know. So I, at better, how many ways were you looking at it at better? Like, I don't it sounds know. like at least a couple. My, my sort of, I, I think, you know, you can read a sort of John Doerr book about OKRs or whatever. You know, I, I think there's some like good like rules of thumb there. Like empirically, like, you know, sort of anecdotally, like what I found is like, you know, there's so many theories about like, you know, how to do OKRs and planning and like metrics mm-hmm. and what leads what and like whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm somewhat skeptical that that explains more than like maybe like 1.5 in like terms of like variability between like, you know, bad implementation and like very good implementation mm-hmm. where or like bad process versus good process. Yeah. So, so I, I almost feel like it's a little bit of like a red herring when I look at like, you know, how do you make, you know, how do you create like a very fast moving company and, and, and a high performing team? Like, I wouldn't even start with the, like, you know, planning process. Like, I feel like that very rarely is, like, the thing that's, like, you know, significant contributing factor to business value being created. Far more things, I think, have to do around, like, okay, are the right people working together? (laughs) What is their working relationship? Who reports to who? Who has the responsibility for hiring people? How are you hiring people? You know, how how fast do you you iterate? Like, how fast do you deploy to production? You know, do you A-B test? Like, do you use data? Like, all those things. Like, and and those are more like granular, like, you know, down in the trenches type things. But that's where I think, you know, that's where I think you can, like, you know, get like a 10 or 100x difference in terms of business value if you, like, do those things right. Yeah, yeah. I think my my way of talking about that is often, you know, people focus on the vector and not enough on the slope, right? Like, it's, you can adjust... if you move faster at a baseline, like you can adjust, you can course correct more, and that so so low level improvements on productivity, to your point, have massive effects. I, um, I think so, and it's like you know, let's say you're like you know a civil engineer again, like I don't know anything about it, but like you're building bridges all the time. Shouldn't like, stop us know, from pontificating, Eric. Like like you know, yeah, it's funny pontification isn't this not me bridge in Latin? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yes, um, <laughs> it does, right? It does. But so you know, and let's say you're like how could we build bridges faster? Like, I, I don't think, you know, planning, you know, project management is going to give, you know, a huge difference in like building bridges. Right. Like, it's probably going to be like some, you know, smarter ways to pour concrete. That's going to be like this, this, you know, or whatever. Or like, here's a much better, like, you know, way to, you know, use an iron bar. I didn't even know anything. Mm-hmm, but like, mm-hmm. my point is like, I, I think that's like, that's where you should look for like, you know, the, the stuff, I think. Yeah, and you kind of inevitably, especially as you get older and wiser, you realize a lot of that has to do with human collaboration. And, and like you said, you know, it's like, are you hiring the right people? Are you getting the right people to work together and how to manage them? And, you know, you have, well, in one case, you run the whole engineering organization, right? And in one case, you're running like a subset of the engineering and data organization. Yeah. And I find that data teams, more than most, right, are overexposed to this collaborative collaboration problem because they're kind of a shared resource in a way that many other teams are not. And you've written about this. So so this is a, hopefully something I'd love to get your thoughts on. So how, if the data team has to collaborate so much, right, to be successful, yeah. how does it do that when it is the most spread out and like the least, has the least often managerial control? Yeah, 
I think, you know, just to go back to like, maybe like, you know, just a summer, like, yeah, summer, sure. like what I've been writing about, like my, my, my question, you know, and I've been telling people this for, for the last few years, you know, in, in blog forums or, or tweeting is that, you know, you can opt for like, you know, extreme centralization or, or like extreme decentralization. So like centralization would be like, you have like one data team, right. And, you know, and everyone reports to the same person and everyone who needs data help has to go to like, you know, some right. data project manager, whatever, and then like mm-hmm. touches it or whatever. The or IT, like the IT model. Yeah. And a lot of teams work that way. Or you can have like a decentralization where it's like everyone just like hires their own data teams and like they report into like, you know, different business units and like, you know, and, and then like they manage their own resources. I think both of those like extremes are quite bad, you know, and I think the problem is like data is like sufficiently specialized that, you know, like it takes a lot, like a certain type of skill, which means like if, if you decentralize it and, and have it reported to various different units, like they don't necessarily know who to hire for like, or like who to hire. And they don't know how to like what good performance looks like. They, they don't know. And, and a lot of data people, like the good data people, they don't want to report as a business person because they're like, how would I like learn like, you know, new things right the other you know extreme let's say you have uh, uh everyone centralized then the problem is the resource allocation like you have like all these other like business units like just like you know fighting about like oh no my thing is more important and like, right i asked for this thing for like 10 days ago and i still haven't had an answer like what's actually going on and then they get like annoyed and then they eventually mm-hmm. build up their own team anyway mm-hmm. so i i think you know in other fields, like you don't really have this problem. Like I think with engineering, we sort of increasingly solve this by like just having full stack, you know, engineers and you know that are like sufficiently generalists that they can like do a little bit of everything and like still like focus on a business like you know feature area. But with data, I think it's complicated. And, and so I think you know data, something like maybe design or QA. I, I think what I sort of advocated for has been some sort of hybrid model where like you know you have centralized reporting, which means like everyone reports into some sort of yep. head of data directly or indirectly. And, but but you have decentralized resource allocation. So so day to day like you know work is actually like you know inside certain teams. So you take the data teams and you're like you basically embed them into different other types of business. You know, yeah, product yeah. Teams I think design definitely follows this pattern at most larger. Exactly, QA tends to be similar too. Yeah, yeah. I think of QA as part of engineering, so it's, it's maybe my head is I may be off on that front. The so I mean I agree with you. The by the way one of the reasons I think engineering was able to solve this is more easily than data is maybe this is some argument about engineers being on the on a spectrum like you brought up earlier but they can collaborate to some degree like more than most using apis right just call it what you will but you know some kind of api and so amazon did this early on where yeah it's a steve yege like the the whole right rant right Right. And, and I think up to a point, up to a point, not all the way, but up to a point, that's one of the abilities engineers, software were able to build that allows you to have deep, you know, decoupling of, of, of individuals. But in the data side, to your point, like, I don't think that's easily doable, given that there's a huge chunk of it is a hard to expose in a consistent API that we have an agreed upon type system for what things mean, because it's basically human very vague human definitions about words, right? Like, what is revenue? <laughs> what is active? And so the it's harder to decouple those. And then we, well, I think the roles are much more heterogeneous in what you and I call data. And I want to ask you about that. So if yeah. data reports into one, at least from a career development perspective, and I, I actually agree with you on this. So I'm actually trying to get at like, you know, how do we make it ideal? So 
so I agree that you know you shouldn't have everyone reporting to marketing and sales and so on and so forth. Like we should create a you know data reporting structure, and then you can loan them out in some form and, and maybe even semi permanently. How in engineering, right? If I run an engineering team, the career stages are easily understandable, and the skill sets they're specializations, of course, right? Back end, front end, full stack, etc. But by and large, I think you and I can look at any engineer in our careers and understand like. This is a senior yeah. engineer. This is a principal engineer. We've got a good, you know, we've got about 30, 40 years of software, you know, kind of background yeah. to, to be able to do that. For data, there's such a diversity of roles in my experience, like data science, data analyst, people who don't even understand what code is, DBAs, right? All of these fall under, you know, data in some form, or another, including low level, like distributed systems engineers who are implementing infrastructure. Yeah. So how do you wrap that under a head of data? Yeah, yeah, you brought something up, which is like sort of interesting, which is like, you know, contrasting this with engineering. And, and I, I sort of agree with most of what you're saying, maybe not all of it. I think, like, just to be clear, like, you know, when I talk about this, like, hybrid model, I think, you know, it's very important to be, like, aware of its drawbacks, right? Like, and the biggest drawback is, like, you may have a manager who's, like, working as a completely different team. And, and like, how do you right. make sure, you know, data scientists get the recognition they deserve for doing a good job or, or you know, or are held accountable if they're not doing a good job, if their manager is elsewhere. And it's very hard to pull that off. And, and I think, you know, in engineering, like people have tried to do a hybrid model, right? Like Spotify was like somewhat famous for a while for having this like, you know, complicated matrix model. And I was there, you know, when Spotify had that. And I think it was a terrible idea because like just specifically for that reason was that, you know, I would, you know, a lot of people would have a manager that would work in some completely different team. And so mm -hmm. they wouldn't get the career development and support and, and recognition they deserve. And, and so, you know, and I think that the reason why it's sort of, you know, in engineering over time has become less of a problem. And maybe this is like, you know, to your point about specialization is that it turns out like most engineers are kind of doing the same thing. So like, you know, what Spotify tried to do was like you would have like front end engineers, mobile engineers, like back end engineers, like reporting into like chapter heads or whatever you call them. And then, right. you know, but they would be like bundled up into feature teams. Turns out like mobile and front end and back end engineers are like, like if you would do one of them, you can sort of do all of them and like, you know, reasonably well, it can have a little bit of specialization. And you like instead, in most cases, it's actually much better and easier to just like have a bunch of full stack engineers in teams, you know, reporting to a person who's both an engineering manager and a tech lead. Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, that's the way I model it better. And then I think, you know, it works a little bit better. I think that's hard to do with data because to your point, like there's so many specialized things and, and also, you know, data to some extent, like you don't want to build up like a parallel organization because that'd be kind of confusing. And, you know, I, ideally you would have like, you know, full stack engineers who also do data, like, you know, but, but that, you know, right. that'd be crazy. Like, you know, and, and, but you don't. So, so, so how do you put data? And, and I don't know, like, I think the specialization is, makes things harder. I, I think, you know, it depends a little bit on each function. Like certain things, like actually, like data engineers, like mm -hmm. like building internal platforms, they actually shouldn't be embedded. Like they should have like internal, like they should have a centralized team, for sure. Right, uh, I agree. That builds like well, now, yes. Like, so, so I think implied in your, I mean, to be fair, like when you think of designers as an analogy, where there's a central org chart, but they are vended out to every team. You know, the career stage profiles are centralized, all sorts of things are, the tools are probably centralized for like their Photoshop or whatever. I'm with you. I think no matter what, there has to be a central sub, like a substrate that is shared across. Yeah. Like, and yeah, you yeah. shouldn't have like 
if you can manage one Kafka instance, like you should manage one, like you shouldn't manage 42, right? Like, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and by the way, Spotify did an interesting thing for a long time, which is that designers four days out of the, out of the week would sit with their respective teams. But on every Friday, all the designers would sit together. And, and that was like sort of the idea. It's like, you know, it has some sort of shared substrate. But anyway, so, so going back to data, I, I think you're right. Like, there's just so many different things. To me, that's a reflection of an immature field. You know, I, I look right. at like other types of engineering, like software, you know, back end and front end. And, you know, I, I think in terms of tools, it's a lot more like well-defined, like what are mm-hmm. the right ways to do things and like how do we get value out of things. In data, it's like the wild west. Like no one knows. Like there's a yep. new tool every year, you know, or, or right. every day. I mean, you know, there's a new set of tools every year. <coughs> Eric, I'm and, not and, even and sure so, people think about it as an engineering <clears throat> discipline. Maybe, you know, and, and I don't even know if they should. Like, I, I think to me, that's like, you know, is that the right way to think about it? Like, I, I think there's a lot of stuff in data that should be more engineering. And, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, like, I think people should write a lot of code and a lot of things. I don't necessarily think it means that all the infrastructure used in software engineering should be used in data because, like, the problems are very different. The, the workflow is very different. The, the, the developer, you know, iteration loop is very different. And, like, mm-hmm. how you learn and iterate and, and how you deploy things and how you automate things like it looks very different for data teams and software but i think the fact remains which is like all of those things on data is very new so no one knows so we don't have this like track record i mean when i look back you know you know 10 years ago you know git came and people were like how do you use git and you know and like initially like there's this thing called like git flow which like some people use which like you know five years later people realize it's actually terrible you know, it would have these like long lived branches yeah. and like, you know, like people just like stuck in rebase hell and stuff like that. And, and like people realize like actually like a much better way to use Git is like, you know, what do you call it? Like you just merge to master, main all the mm-hmm. time. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, there's something similar about like tools and, and roles and, and sort of disciplines. Like, you know, initially, like no one knows, like, you know, so sometimes these like false ideas take hold. Sometimes people, you know, just try different things and, you know, sometimes it works. But over time, I think, you know, you sort of converge to like, okay, more like established like patterns for like how you do things. And, and I think then you end up with like fewer ways to do things and fewer roles and more like generalist things because tools end up like solving a lot of things you didn't have in the past, et cetera. This is really interesting. So, I mean, I like the, I like the angle that... You know, the, the field is young, so so it gives us a little bit of, uh, I don't know, it gives us a feel for like, hey, we don't have to get it all right right now, which is good. And it explains that we don't might, you and I and others might not have the answers. But to me, you know, you and I kind of very quickly gravitated there to talking about kind of the how and the tools of it. And I'm going to double click on that in one second. But to me, there's even, let's say you're running a data team. And in it, you say like, eventually we're going to have a kind of, maybe more generalist in, in, in the way that engineering end up having full stack engineering. But I really strongly believe that in software engineering as a whole, whether you're a compiler engineer or a UI dev, right? We have a pretty clear way of saying you're a junior, you're senior, you're principal, you're a technical fellow. <laughs> Broadly yeah. speaking, they have to do with how much leverage you have and how much scope you have and, and those kinds of things. But we also have kind of basic fundamentals about like, the way you you code at some level also changes as you get to those levels. And it has less to do about version control, right? Whether you know how to use it. I think those are quickly not the core of it. But with data, my point to you is there's data engineers, to your point, right? Who who build things like Luigi, like you did, and run infrastructure and invent infrastructure. And then there's people who are data scientists or even just analysts who just 
you know, their area of expertise for the next 20 years is going to be being unbelievably good with kind of figuring out revenue and understanding it and like modeling it and, and so on and so forth, right? So is there going to be a principal analyst? And if so, like, are you really saying that's the same career ladder as like a principal data engineer? I, I think, you know, a lot of this, like, you know, when you look at it at the root, it's, it's about quantifying the, the value you create. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, to me, that's like the core of it. Right. And I think that I, I think there's like, you know, sort of a little bit of like an emergent way of like looking at engineers and saying, yeah, you can like roughly quantify it in these things. And I think what it usually boils down to is like, you know, what's your impact? You know, this yeah, idea scope of, of your like, impact, you know, right? How exactly, many humans like, you know, or dollars are you impacting? Yeah. Principal engineer may have like an impact on their entire, you know, sub organized department, yeah. you know, whatever. Right, like whereas like a junior, you know, or if somebody exists, or like just a software engineer, like they, they might just have an impact on themselves or maybe the team around them, and, and you know, and, and I think I don't know, like I, I think, so so, but a junior like, analyst might solve a revenue question that is applies to the whole company, right? So it's like I know it's, it's yeah. so. It, someone was asking me about this the other day, like how do you quantify the impact of data teams? I don't know. It, I think it's like in a way, it's almost like a question that's like impossible to to answer because I feel like you know. The job of the data team itself is to like you know find things about the organization that's like suboptimal and you know and propose them and and so you know if the organization can't measure itself like you know how are they going to measure the data team like the whole point of like the data team is to like bring certainty to from uncertainty sure and so sure. I, I, I I feel like there's like you know they're not building anything they're just like you know finding data for other people to then make decisions to then build things. So like, I don't know how, like, you know, how do you measure the counterfactual? Like, I, I don't know, like, it feels like very hard to, to know. Yeah, I think you're, it is really hard. Uh, and I think there are some maybe analogs outside of engineering that we should look at, right? Because I think you and I are maybe overly biased on the engineering side. So what makes someone, let's take something totally different, right? But a lot of data teams live under their CFO, so they will appreciate this. What makes someone a junior accountant versus a principal accountant? And yeah. my assumption is they can sift through much more complex situations, right? They can, they are able to both analyze a more complex organization, like my taxes versus, you know, you know, Tesla's taxes. Yeah. <laughs> and so they can wrap their minds around it and they can finesse more moves, right? They can say, well, let's structure, let's do this instead of doing that. And, and totally. my accountant would never be able to think of those things. Yeah, so, Absolutely. Right. So that's so, it's really, it's really a good point. Like, and, and I've actually thought about it specifically with accountants and lawyers and other types of jobs. There, you know, to, to me, there's like a very, you know, a, a mediocre, you know, accountant when you talk to them. Like, they'll be able to answer a question like, if I do this, how much will my taxes be? Right. Like, and they can answer that question because they know the laws, right? A good accountant or a good lawyer, you can go to them and say, what should I do? Right. Like, how should I do? I want to minimize taxes or I want to do this thing so it's legal. Yeah. Like, can you figure it out? Like, here are my constraints. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like a good one will be able to like, you know, and, and you know, my experience is like, you know, most accountants can't figure that out. They'd be like, oh, but you need to, you know, but if you do the, like, and so, and, and maybe there's something similar for data teams. Like, like maybe that that's a difference. Like, I, I, you know, and, and like, you know, a junior person will be able to like answer a question. But like a, a, like a, a very senior person will be able to like, you know, not answer a question, but actually like, you know, tell what the company should do. Maybe even more senior should like answer a question that no one even asked. Right. Which is like, oh, I found this like new thing. There's like massive opportunity. Like, you know, we're doing these stupid things. And look here, you know, all these people are searching for this thing that like we don't sell. 
And so we should offer that. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe that's like, yeah. And so you see like the, in my mind, so, so I think that's a reasonable framework, right? That you, you know, we could apply. And then at the same time, I think of from your story, the kind of one of the ways you had massive impact at Spotify, right? And effectively in the industry. So, you know, you, you could easily say, you know, you earned your title or whatever is by building something like Luigi and Annoy. And those are tools you used to make doing everything else easier, right? That's a classic example. Of like you just increase the baseline velocity of your team. Is that a fair yeah. way to describe it? Yeah. Which is kind of like different than the way we think about accounting where it's like how complicated a thing can you handle and how can you invent new solutions to my like accounting problems or legal problems? And it's much more about can I make my fellow humans move faster? And yeah. in engineering, I think we pride ourselves on that, right? It's like that's, yeah, yeah, we yeah. know how powerful that is. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of touch on this with you, which is first to me, like that's hard to manage an organization where some of the humans are going to be, you want to reward them for building velocity and others you want to reward them for, you know, managing complexity, let's call it, right? Like those are two different like kind of axes on which you will grow. And so managing that as one head of data, it feels more like a GM kind of job rather than you might still need like a kind of analyst manager and a, and a data eng manager, right? Like you might need to still split that into two management structures, but that's not so hard to do. Yeah, for sure. So to you what can have degree? people under you who build platforms and then you can have other people who like bring order to data and then- you Exactly, know, exactly. And maybe they have different career stage profiles, et cetera, right? Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. So, okay. So to what degree, so let's finish on this topic. Like to what degree are data teams, how should they be thinking about their own velocity and their own tooling? So it's obviously timely, right? Like you said, the data world is like changing way too fast. Like there's new tools every day. I think part of that is there's an increase in humans working on it, right? There's just so many more people investing in data. And you and I have worked in this field for a little while. And yeah, but I, I do think the average, you know, kind of data team, which is not potentially as large as yours was, or maybe your team at Better was relatively small. Like, how should they think about investment in tooling, how to pick tooling, especially if it's changing all the time, and what what their benchmark should be for good tooling and good velocity is? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think toolings are, tooling in the data world is so immature, in my opinion. Like, like, you know, and, 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 like, especially when it comes to like code, I, I actually think it's very interesting. Like, you know, I've been trying to understand, you know, DBT success and like thinking a lot mm -hmm. about like, where it's coming from. And, and like, I, I think some people may look at like DBT and, and say, well, you know, it's obvious, like they open up, you know, so that you can just do very complicated things in SQL. And then, you know, that made it possible for many other people. I actually don't think that's right. It, or like, I, I think to me, like that explains like some fraction of like DBT success. I think the bigger fraction of their success was just like, they lower the cost of building data pipeline by like 10x, you know, or 90%. Like if you're staying in SQL land. And, and so, so suddenly like people started building like 10x more, you know, mm -hmm. or 100x more because you lowered, you know, the cost uh, pipelines in, in SQL. And, and like, by the way, my perspective is different. My, my perspective is they made it, they introduced non-engineers to the basics of engineering. Like... I.e. Yeah, yeah. Committing, so, so that's like committing the, code. First, the first point. That, but that, that's yeah. like, you know, if you come from our world, that's like, well, that seems like almost banal. But I think it was a huge leap to basically be, you know, you talked about Git 10 years ago, but like you and I had new version control before that. Like I went to university and learned version control in university, right? Like CVS and, yeah. and, and, and et cetera, subversion, et cetera. And like 
and the terrible Microsoft ones that existed in the 90s. Uh, but, you know, th I think to the analyst world, it was a complete new concept. So it just changed the way I think they, they work, which was a first 10x. But I'm with you on it also allows you to do well, much deeper pipelines. I, 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 think, I think my, I, so like I disagree on that. Front. And I think the part of it is like, it's actually not that hard to write Python. It, 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 but like that comes with the big caveat. It's not that hard to write Python, in my opinion. What's like really fucking hard with Python is like, okay, you wrote this like code. Well, how the fuck are you gonna do now? Okay, you right. gotta like build a Docker container. I gotta like put on Kubernetes. Yeah, game over. I gotta like figure out the Terraform. I gotta figure out version control. I, like, you know, it's, your brain just explodes versus like SQL. It's like, okay, it's like query. You like run it and you get an answer back. And like, uh -huh. you know, so the execution environment and deployment model is like very well understood. So, so to me, I don't know if it's, you know, that, I mean, it's probably a little bit easier to understand SQL than it is to understand Python. But I, I don't think that explains. I, I, I actually, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the deployment model, anytime you reduce the barriers to deployment, the really amazing things happen. I mean, you and I grew up with the birth of the web and it was like, yeah, just put put a file up and you have a exactly. web page, right? Totally. Exactly. And, totally. you know, and look at something like PHP or whatever, you know, it's not that hard to, to, to learn and get started. And then like, you know, eventually a lot of those people, you know, who got started with PHP ended up being, you know, very good developers. But PHP started out as a templating engine. But anyway, so, so, so I think SQL or Python, I think to me, it's it's all about like lowering the barrier. And like what the DBT did was like to lower the barrier, lower lower the cost, actually. I, sh I, I think that's like more important. Like it's about lowering mm. the cost. People don't want like a dumbed down thing. Like, but what they want is to like something that like costs, has a very low cost of like building things. And, and I think that's what DBT was able to accomplish on the SQL side. I don't think we have that on the code side. And I, and I think, you know, so, so that I think, you know, it's like one sort of obvious place where just like so much like tooling that I think is bad. Like, you know, like, you know, it is very, comes with a very high cost as soon as you need to build something that's like, you know, you need to generate, like compute something every night at midnight and, you know, send an email or whatever like that. That's quite hard. So, so I, I, you know, I don't know if that's like a helpful thing to anyone at a data team, like thinking about this. Like to, to me, this is like reflects more like, you know, a set of gaps in the market. But I think, but I, I, I don't know, to, to some extent. I hear I you. Think, you know, I, I, let me see if I can paraphrase and see if I understood what you said. So, so I think, and because we have people who, you know, come from all sorts of backgrounds at this point. So DBT, right, encodes very, in a very, in a dramatically cheaper way, right? It encodes a series of dependencies that before that, even if you were cognizant, like if you wanted to do that in SQL and you were super good with it, you would have to figure out how to chain together a series of programs. And doing that involves figuring out where to deploy them, how to define their dependencies, and how to run them one after the other, et cetera, et cetera, right? Which yeah. is like orders of magnitude more complicated, both to design and to maintain and to deploy and to manage. I'm with you. And so you're saying code is actually still not easy enough to do across, I guess, I assume what you mean by like across different deployment units, right? Where there's things that depend on each other that are loosely coupled. Because I assume, I think you and I have the same like background. So it's like within an application, this is relatively well solved, right? Yeah. Within a single deploy, like comp compilation unit, let's call it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've, we've sold this for backend engineering, and, and right. like the, the okay. solutions are well understood because we've had okay. them for 20, 30 years. I, right. I don't think they're well understood for data. And I think you know, a problem is like people say we need to bring more software engineering into the data world. I'm not sure about that because I, I think you know, I think we need to reevaluate from the point of view of like what is data, what are data teams trying to build? 
And I'm not convinced like the existing infrastructure stack for backend engineers is exactly the, the, the same as, as, you know, what data teams need. I, I don't know if it's, you know, if it's like the same stack with Docker and Kubernetes and Terraform and like whatever it is, like, I, is that the right one? I don't know. Do you think the data, okay, well, hold on. Let me ask you a few like questions here. Cause I, <clears throat> I don't really, I spend so much more time thinking about, you know, kind of the analyst side of it that I think less day to day about, you know, the what would be the back end stack for a data engineer, the equivalent of a back end stack. Do you think it's multilingual? Do you think whatever we're building here is like something like in the vein of Docker and, and Terraform that is like independent of language? Or is it like a Rails where we're going to build something far richer in the, let's call it Python ecosystem that just works and encodes the right conventions for what a data I engineer don't know. would want? I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I look at something like React, and I think that's like a massively successful framework that, that mm -hmm. basically, it introduced a couple of things. Like, w one thing I was actually thinking about today is that I think React did really well. It was like, it's declarative, but it's all in code. And so I think that was like, you know, one way to like sort of think about like how it's successful. It's like, you're actually writing your like DOM, you know, as code on like Angular, which is like, yeah. but, but I think the other thing was that React was like, wait a minute, people want both HTML and JavaScript. We're just gonna combine them, and like I, I don't know, I, I I I don't know. I'm not necessarily sure that's like you know carries over to the data team. But I think that you know we shouldn't rule it out. Like you <laughs> know, clearly works for JSX. So I, I don't know. Like I, I may, sometimes I think there's a new language we have to build. Some, but sometimes I think you know actually Python's pretty good, and we should just do everything in Python. Sometimes I'm like, no, Python sucks. Like we should do everything in SQL. Like I I, I don't know. Like I, I think there's, I, I think you know. There's so many ways you can do this. Yeah. Do you think, oh, this is, we don't have time to get into this, Eric, but I like this. Do you think people, this is definitely an example in my mind of imagination, right? Like this is, you're looking for non-incremental improvements, which I totally buy. And it's obviously easier to, to kind of resolve complexity in a single language environment and therefore, it's like maybe it should be something net new, especially if my worry generally, and I don't know if you share it, when backend became more solidified in the patterns and in the ways, it was, first of all, a very long period of time had passed of people building software. And it was built for, it was not a way to limit power, right? It was to encode the patterns that we had arrived at as like, these are good patterns. And here, there's just such a broader, like I said, to going back to our earlier conversation, there's such a broad variety of people working in data. I have met data engineers who have no formal engineering background the way you and I have, and they can do a lot of things. And there's some that come from a, you know, they wish they could write everything in Scala or whatever. And so I, I wonder if it's going to be difficult to introduce something that spans, right? It's, it goes back to my question of like, you know, the same way there's career spanning, right? Like, can you build a single language or environment that spans versus should we just make it smoother and smoother to, to interoperate, right? Do we need a, do we need a common runtime rather than a more uh, of a common language? Yeah. I don't know what the solution is. I, sometimes I think about like, you know, building websites, that's like an interesting analogy, right? Like, you know, t 10, 20 years ago, you know, like people didn't know how to build websites. And so, you know, they were like, we're going to have this like Dreamweaver, like right. whatever. Was that Adobe or Acro? I forget. Whatever. Macromedia, maybe. 
maybe it was and, Mac and, and you know, and people are like, this is clearly the future of how we're going to build websites. Everyone's going to build websites in dream, like, you know, whatever. There's like a WYSIWYG editors coming. And then, but then, you know, now I think, you know, 20 years later or whatever it is, like, I think it's clear, like, those are, you know, it's a very different thing if you're going to use React or if you're going to use Webflow or like right. Squarespace, right? Right. Like, those are right. Like completely different use cases. Like, yeah, Correct. if you want to build something that's like, you know, very unique and you know you want you know you, you want to think about like building it from you know with the right foundations and you know then yeah you should write your own code and you know there's a very large market for that for a lot of people they want to build a web shop or whatever like i don't know like i'm a lawyer i need a website you know they can just go and get webflow or squarespace or whatever and i think you know the fact that we sort of you know in the data world sometimes like conflate those things and think of it as like you know the same market to me is another sign that the market is maybe like very immature. Like, you know, yeah. clearly in like, you know, when I think about web designs, like, you know, people don't even like think of those things as like the same thing. You know, they can happily coexist. Like they're very different parts of the market. You know, I don't know if there's like something similar in the data world. Like, you know, I, I think there's like maybe like very, you know, a lot of like self-service tools that can happily coexist with like very complicated like infrastructure stuff that like some other engineers build. Like every tool doesn't have to solve like for both things no, at the you're- same time. That's really good. I'm gonna, we're going to leave it at that. Like, first of all, Dreamweaver, I looked it up while you were talking. It, it was Macromedia, which became nice. Adobe, right? So okay, <laughs> you were right. It. Okay. Right? I mean, you and I are old enough to remember this. So it is known today yeah, as yeah. Adobe Dreamweaver. But you're right. You know, I remember that first era of the web. The tools were point and click, you know, designy with the code. Like, there was not a, there was no Webflow slash a kind of, Square, there was definitely no Squarespace, right? And so you're right. Those worlds kind of end, ended up splitting into yeah. there's a persona that uses Squarespace, there's a persona that uses Webflow, and there's a persona that writes it in, you know, what is it? Jekyll and Hugo and whatever. Yeah, React. Gatsby. React or, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And so Svelte, you're right. I don't know what's Maybe the fact that we haven't figured that out in data just in just implies how early we are. And everyone's kind of trying to see if we mix it. Do we have... I mean, maybe you could argue like Excel has always been the Squarespace solution. Yeah. And, and then all the way down at the bottom is just random code. Well, you see, like, see, I think it's a good, you're right. I think there's invention here that that is still ahead of us, which is kind of fun. It's a good reason yeah. to be in the space. Totally. I mean, that's why uh, I'm playing around with stuff in the space. I think it's yeah, so yeah. Well, I decided not to quiz you on what you're messing around with, but I'm sure we'll have a second conversation about that someday. But listen, Eric, this was really enjoyable for me. I hope, hope, hope it was a good conversation. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, awesome. Thanks for uh, hosting me. For sure, man. All right, we'll talk soon. Well, folks, until next time, this is The Sequel Show. Special thanks to Joe Stevens for our theme song. And thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to get notified for a future episodes. <laughs>